Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is brought to you by Mossy Willow Farm. Mossy Willow Farm is a thriving market garden that uses regenerative, no-till practices based in Main Ridge on the Mornington Peninsula in Victoria, Australia. Building nutrient-rich soil is central to Mossy Willow's methodology, which in turn creates an abundance of nutrient-rich produce all year round. Mossy Willow Farm is also home to a weekly farm gate, retreats and functions for values-aligned businesses. It's also where we held our farm festival to launch issue 58 under happy sunshine and a cool breeze. Find out more about the farm and which farmers markets to visit to buy their produce at mossywillowfarm.com. Hey there, I'm Nathan from Dumbo Feather. Excited to be sharing with you the latest episode of the Dumbo Feather podcast. For the past couple of months, we've been getting our hands dirty, sharing stories to do with agriculture and how we can grow food in a way that regenerates our ecosystems. It's all connected to our latest magazine, Healing the Land, which features some of the great farmers and growers of our time, including Wendell Berry, Charles Massey and Vandana Shiva. This episode of the podcast is with someone of similarly great standing, the co-founder of Permaculture, David Holmgren. David is an educator, environmental designer and writer whose latest book is Retro Suburbia, an enormously rich manual full of ideas for creating an abundant home economy. David speaks with Permaculture design consultant and Dumbo Feather friend, Dan Palmer. Great to be in conversation with you today, David. Good to talk to you, Dan. I thought we'd start, it'd be great to just paint a picture of where we're sitting here. So we're sitting in, inside your beautiful home here at Meliodora, which is the name you've given to a two and a half acre permaculture demonstration site in, in a homestead here in Hepburn, central Victoria. So we're talking, there's goats out there, there's geese, there's chickens, there's lots of fruit trees, timber trees, nut trees, vegetable gardens, dams. You've built two ecologically sensitive homes here using recycled materials and mud brick and so on. Is it six people living here at the moment? Uh, yeah, yeah. There's uh, six of us in three uh, semi-independent households on the property in what's still actually really a suburban street in a, a small country town. Uh, we're sitting on a floor from timber that we salvage, not from old buildings, but from the Heritage Gardens of Mount Macedon burnt in the Great Fires of 1983. So, yeah, there's so many stories, of course, built into to this uh, place. And we've lived a very home-based lifestyle, and it's been our workplace, uh, consultancy work, tours, uh, working from home has been something we've been doing here for uh, nearly 35 years. Why don't we start... 
David, with the question of what is permaculture for anyone out there who's unfamiliar. So in a nutshell, David Holmgren, very good person to ask this question <laughs> as a co-originator. And um, we'll talk more in a sec about how it was originated by yourself and Bill Mollison together in the mid to late 1970s. But in a nutshell, what is permaculture? Yeah, because of that lineage over those um, more than 40 years, it means different things to different people and in different places around the world. But I often summarise it as a design system for sustainable living and land use. And by saying living and land use, it implies the consumption side of the equation, our own behaviour, how we live and what resources we directly use. Land use implies how we manage land primarily through agriculture, but also forestry, fishing, beekeeping. And of course, that other hidden aspect of land use, which is mining the great uh, fossil fuel resources and non-renewable resources that sustain us in the modern world. So it's about bringing those two halves, the production side of the equation and the consumption side, putting those back together. So that process of, of them becoming sustainable through putting it back together. I think one take home there is the scope of permaculture. It's, it's energy systems, waste systems, uh, building, mm. community, the whole lot. Yeah, and that's part of its strength and you could say part of its weakness. You know, it is uh, a grand holistic theory of how we redesign the whole of society, how we everything we do needs redesign because of the fundamental nature of the environmental challenge, the what was called the limits to growth back in the in the nineteen seventies, is still the underlying problem that our civilization is facing. So it's dealing with those large issues. It then is at risk, of course, of being um, encouraging people to be jacks of all trades and masters of none. Uh, and in its own sense that it's focused on so many things, are people pursuing permaculture doing any of those things properly? But it's part of the nature of the problem facing humanity. We need to almost redesign everything uh, from first principles. I've appreciated in other contexts how you talk about the transition permaculture invites us into from a life of dependent consumption where we're dependent on centralised and distant sources of all kinds of resources to to interdependent production where we're taking responsibility for Mm, producing a lot of our own That shift is really important. I mean, for a lot of people... Permaculture is a cool form of organic gardening, um, you know, that's a little bit different maybe, or some of the methods that are used typically in permaculture involve maybe a wider range of species, a much stronger emphasis on perennial uh, plants and trees and tree crops. But um, people would also see it perhaps as an alternative uh, lifestyle. Uh, so this varies, of course, in different places in the world because permaculture has gone uh, around the world. Another aspect that has been drawn to my attention or clarified for me recently by a French architectural critic, Sebastien Moet, is that in an exhibition he's running about agriculture and architecture called Taking the Countryside at the 
Lisbon Triennale uh, this year. He's framing this great historical process of the beginnings of agriculture and urban civilization, that these two things were actually together. And then he brings that through into the modern world and sees permaculture as actually the central concept that's pulling agriculture and architecture back together into a union. And you can see that really in the beginnings of permaculture, that it's about human habitation, where we live and how we live. But the most important thing about that is actually not the shelter. That is very important, but it's food. We need to eat pretty much every day. Uh, obviously, water is a more fundamental need, but it's so simple really to provide water for people to drink. Food is a complicated and troubled issue through the centuries and today. So there's a very strong focus in permaculture, although it's not just about gardening and farming. Food is, and how we produce it, is central to permaculture. I thought it would be cool to ask a little bit about your journey with permaculture, because it was in the late mm. 70s, you were, you were 19 years old when you met and had a couple of years of intense collaboration with Bill Mollison, out of which the permaculture concept was originated. And now like 40 years have gone by and mm. permaculture's grown this <laughs> like global network where a lot of people are identifying and taking a lot of inspiration and, and guidance from permaculture as, as a way of thinking uh, and an approach to life, as well as a whole suite of, of practical things you can do on the ground. Like, what does that feel like to, to as a, you know, a young, a young man to be part of birthing this thing and the experience of its its evolution over over the decades. Mm, it's interesting in terms of the sense of how much was I a force in directing that and how much did it did I experience it as happening to me. Certainly there were expectations in the 70s that the the nature of the limits to growth crisis we were approaching very fast and there would be huge changes in the near future and some of those changes didn't come about. So in some ways, uh, there's aspects where I'd expected permaculture or ideas like permaculture would be thrust into the foreground out of necessity. If the energy crises of the 1970s had continued, the Western world would have gone into deep economic contraction and all of the ideas that were coming through, uh, permaculture, owner building, uh, cooperatives, intentional communities, all of these ideas would have grown massively and spread through society. So in that sense, that didn't happen. <laughs> uh, permaculture ticked away in the background as a positive agent of influence through modern environmentalism uh, and also out at the fringes in the geographic fringes and the conceptual fringes outside of academia through the brilliant system that Mollison set up of the permaculture design course, a uh, two-week uh, mostly residential course that really was the primary mechanism for the spread of permaculture. And it's interesting that in the early years, I was more an observer and even a critic of that process because I pointed out that I was the co-originator of the concept with my much better known uh, mentor, Bill Mollison, but he was the father of the movement. And in a lot of ways, I was sceptical about the idea of, if you like, 
political or ideological movements. Some of that was due to my family background. Some of it because of a, a deep systems view of what were the limits of mass movements of people getting excited about doing things versus the building the solutions, robust solutions uh, that would then be ready for when they were needed. So I was much more on that sort of personal direction. And that suited me as a young person too, because I didn't really want to be out on doing the rock star tour, world tour type of stuff. And that was all there as a possibility in in the late 70s and, and early 80s. And Mollison was ready for that. He was in middle age and ready for a much larger stage than where he'd been at the University of Tasmania uh, when I worked with him. But I was more, I wanted to get my hands dirty, do this stuff, and was a little bit self-effacing about at 23 when Permaculture One was published. You know, my actual practical expertise was in the technical things underpinning permaculture was quite limited. And so I was much more focused on, well, let's go off and do these things. Let's see if we can be the guinea pigs, you know, do them ourselves. But it it was through the, the permaculture design course process that the ideas did spread and connect to a, so many other kindred ideas uh, around the world. And I sort of really became an observer of that and was sort of drawn back into that and became involved in explicit permaculture design course teaching in the in the early 90s. So it it's for me a, a long process of course now I am 20 years older than Bill Mollison was when I met him <laughs> and that role of exercising some sort of at least collegiate leadership in the movement uh, is something that I've accepted, but my primary interest is still as a conceptualizer and a practitioner. I remember the story I heard anyway, I think from you, you were a bit uncomfortable with that original burst of interest in permaculture and retreated to some extent and, and, and did experiments and tried stuff out. But I remember one time you were talking about how you came back to one of the early permaculture gatherings or convergences that you you felt a, a real sense of kin or you know like wait mm. here are some yeah. so i mean which implies that there must must have been some loneliness as part of the journey because mm. you, you're you're asking at a young age right you're asking deep questions and really seeking some ways of understanding and moving forward with what, what you saw as really serious issues humanity was facing yes well i, I suppose i would attribute that ability to do that to my family upbringing in a family of political radicals who taught me to think for myself and that I had the lived experience of being a fringe person who wasn't scared to articulate my difference in growing up in Western Australia in the 1960s, being beaten up in primary school for being a communist traitor because of what I said about the war in Vietnam in the very early days of the great opposition movement to the the war in Vietnam. And I took for granted that as a family, we didn't really belong. We didn't really fit in. I I sort of had a characterisation of that as being second-generation alienated 
that my parents were first generation alienated, being extreme radicals who rejected uh, religion, rejected their family upbringing, that sort of wrenching away from all of what you've grown up with and that requires enormous strength but also leads uh, to a sort of a a hollowness or or something missing inside people who do that. Whereas I grew up taking for granted that that alienation was okay, that uncertainty, that fact that we don't know, the fact that issues, ethical issues need to be grappled with, not just for philosophical reasons, but for immediate issues, and that there isn't really certainty, and it's okay to be the goat heading over the hill that way while the sheep, the flock of sheep are heading the other way. So I noticed that a lot of people of my generation in what was called at the time the Generation Gap or the Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll Revolution of the 60s and 70s, that that was a time when there was a particular wide breach of people of my age becoming first generation alienated. And for a lot of those people, in that search around for meaning after that break, permaculture seemed to actually represent that holistic ecological, ethics-based, we can design our own world, our own future, mm. and, and make it happen. Uh, but I did find that, yes, this is an interesting experience to go to events and find a whole lot of people who think like I do. <laughs> and so that was a sort of, yeah, quite a, a revelation. That was the first international conference in permaculture in northern New South Wales in eighty four. Oh, wonderful. One thing you mentioned is that experience you had of people's sense of coming across permaculture and really being lit up with it, which is something that I experienced and I've seen a lot of other people experience. Like Part, mm. part of it, I feel like, I want to ask you about this. It's like a realisation of, of a have your cake and eat it too situation. Like I sometimes wonder if in our culture there's this underlying um, idea that humans are inherently bad for for nature or for ecosystems. And, and for me, part of what excited me and I know excites others is this realization of part of what permaculture represents is like guess what humans are part of nature and they can continue to be parts of nature with and not only in ways that aren't destructive but potentially in ways that are positive and enhancing enhancing yeah so that regenerate nature rather than just minimize our impact yeah I think that is um, one of the most uh, empowering aspects that people realize which which comes from a, a a deeper understanding of systems ecology that first recognizing that we are not separate we we still humans at an individual level right through to a society and civilizational level are still governed by all the same rules of energy and uh, natural uh, processes and so uh, we are bound within that which also means we have the potential to harmonise within that in the same way that any other species is under influences that constrain it to sort of help contribute to the larger whole while at the same time that they contribute to their own survival. And of course, this at its essence is a a deeply different story to the... um, the simplistic Darwinian dog-eat-dog competition rules the world, which, of course, the critics of that view, which is still the orthodox view, began countering 
in the 19th century in so many different ways. You know, the, the Rousseauian view of the noble savage, of people living in harmony with nature, as simplistic as that may have been, was an example. But one of the big influences on permaculture was the Russian anarchist geographer and really proto-ecologist Kropotkin, who wrote the book Mutual Aid, which showed that inherent in nature is this powerful process that encourages cooperation, symbiosis, and that then going through human history, showing that humans over the vast majority of history have actually been dominated by processes of cooperation, not competition. So that story, that counter story, is still being articulated again and again to undo the founding mythologies or the founding belief structures which some historians would argue is the underlying source of the the problem. It's the ideas in our head. So I'm just reading a book at the moment, Jeremy Lent, uh, called The Patterning Instinct, which is another much more sophisticated articulation of this, that humans are this inherently cooperative species in our origins and that we need to remake our story about ourselves as part of the Mm -hmm. solution. And permaculture has been part of that over the last 40 years of remaking that story. And of course, you can say, oh, well, that's just a story, isn't it? Well, this is these two sort of ideas of history and two ideas embedded in the start of permaculture that we are constrained by the the laws of nature and the limits Mm -hmm of resources, they are real and we can't negotiate them away. And that if we look at human history in the big lens, we can see energetics and geography and ecology are the things that determine things. And I've placed a lot of emphasis on that side. Uh, Whereas Mollison tended to place more emphasis on the idea encapsulated in the saying that the yield is only limited by uh, imagination, that the way we think about things is a huge, powerful, both constraint and enabler. And because of the incredible cosmology, which is inside humans' heads individually and more so collectively, wired together through mimetic communication that existed before language and then language right through to the you know, current expressions in the internet, this sort of powerful hive mind of humanity, that way we see things, all our spiritual beliefs, ethics, philosophy, uh, worldviews, actually have this real impact back in the material world. It's interesting, as you're talking, because I'm conscious of this, I don't know if you say tension, but I'm seeing in what you're saying that part of what permaculture is, it's, it's holding space for a story. Because I'm really, I'm so conscious of the narrative that I've learned recently is, is compelling to so many people around, I, I guess it starts from the idea that humans are inherently bad, or just the, the way that humans work is that they trash the, the ecologies they're part of. And so like the Elon Musk type narrative that we can use intelligent design and we can go off to Mars and create these paradisical um, settlements on other planets once, <laughs> once we've trashed Earth. Whereas what to me, part of what permaculture is saying is like, uh, yeah, maybe, probably not. But um, what about we, we, we point the kind of 
arrow in the exact opposite direction, you know, rather than pointing it towards Mars and let's leave the wasted Earth behind. Point it back at, <laughs> at Mother Earth and what would it mean to realise that Earth is a, is a paradise already or, mm. or you know, a paradise waiting to happen? I remember in, in Permaculture 1 that this, this quote, it was something like, and so we're suggesting a Garden of Eden. And why not? You know, the idea of mm. we, we have what we need within those limits and constraints you talked mm. about using our gifts and our intelligence and design and, and, and everything else to create these abundant oases where humans can be humans again and mm. enjoy quality of life while, while nourishing themselves and others. Yeah, so a lot of that influence was even back at the beginnings of permaculture, the, the challenge of Indigenous peoples and especially hunter-gatherer peoples, as it was often described, but people who lived with very, very simple minimalist material culture, that that is 99% of human history and 99% of human cultural lineage. And the challenges of that that have been shown increasingly that actually people in those cultures did a few hours work a day to provide for their needs because their concept of their needs had actually, from our point of view, shrunk to very, very simple things and the provision of food and, and shelter could be easily done with remarkably simple technology. So rather than being, uh, life being short, uh, brutish and, you know, violent, it was actually, you know, the opposite. Now, I mean, I, I, I think it's important not to romanticize that, that, human origins, but those ideas that have been much better documented in the years since we wrote uh, and published Permaculture One in 1978, those influences were there that Aboriginal land use and ways of being were were part of the the inspiration for permaculture, that we could take the best out of the three great lineages of human cultural evolution, the hunter-gatherer, nomad, minimalist heritage, the long history, the the 10,000 years of settled agricultural history, and the 250 years of industrial modernity. And we could take the best out of those things to craft a new culture that would inevitably need to relocalize as the reverse of globalization happened as the wealth of fossil fuel declined, but that that would create different local cultures, but all had a unity in being some new stage in, in human evolution. So built into permaculture was the idea of, yes, some notion of progressive human cultural evolution, but also a reworking, a reawakening of the deep wisdom that lay with our ancestors at at, at different levels. Yeah, beautiful. One question I just wanted to ask straight out was, if you look back, I mean, I know it's obviously been evolving and there's yourself and so many other people around the world writing books on permaculture and contributing to its evolution in all kinds of ways, but do you look back and think, oh, and we stuffed that bit up or? Uh, yeah, well, I, I suppose um, there's a, a, lots of different things where there was over-optimism about what could be achieved. Uh, one of the, the great ideas at the start of permaculture was, of course, the idea that uh, 
annual grains and other annual crops are the most damaging part of the food production system. I mean, if you leave aside really stupid things like feedlotting of um, beef cattle or, you know, obscenities of industrial agriculture that have evolved that we could say we don't need to do that. We shouldn't be doing that. But the problem of ploughing land, sowing seed to provide our staple basic food sources has been throughout civilization the cause of the devastation of those civilizations, the soil erosion and, and, and depletion. So permaculture uh, picked up on the idea that if we could, if humans could get more of their basic food needs from trees, especially nut trees, uh, that trees are inherently more stable as an ecological system than annual grains. And we saw through the evidence around the world that so many of these tree crops grew on incredibly marginal agricultural land and proposed these large application of these ideas. And I think in the ancient worn out soils of Australia, we underestimated how a lot of those soils managed to grow grass and managed to grow gum trees and wattle trees and support kangaroos. And they don't very well support grain crops, but they don't very well support tree crops either because the, the mineral base is so poor or the structure of the soil through its profile is so poor that it's waterlogged and wet in winter in southern Australia and bone dry and like concrete in summer and that it requires very, very special plants to be able to survive and thrive in those conditions and most of them are things that produce fibre and maybe some uh, timber and maybe some honey, but mostly not produce human food. Um, I think perhaps one of the other ones that relates to that a bit was the tendency for a lot of people to decide they needed to go out away from society at the remotest remote place, partly because land was cheap there, uh, but also to get away from all the bad things that were happening in society and also away from the likely implosion of society or cities. And, and so people were applying permaculture on some of the most marginal land where the competition from the wallabies and the, and, and the rabbits, uh, the frosts and the uh, poor soils was more extreme and more difficult for that experimental nature. And in saying that, of course, permaculture from the beginning was also connected to the intentional communities movement. And Mollison's, uh, one of Mollison's efforts at that process in Stanley in Tasmania was actually not going out to the remote back blocks, which was moving to a country town and saying, well, there's good agricultural land around those country towns, there's good soil, there's houses. Why don't we form a community in that space? So those ideas were there in permaculture that sort of mitigated that particular um, problem. But there's been a lot of learnings since, and that runs right through to my retro suburbia work about re-inhabiting the suburbs where most people 
uh, in countries like Australia and New Zealand grew up as places that can be permaculture paradises of the future. Yeah, great. great. Well, that, that's perfect because I wanted to acknowledge that I imagine most of the listeners are in the suburbs or in the, you know, in the, in the city environment. And I wanted to get to some practical advice. This, this new, new, new book and mm. the series of talks you're doing on richer suburbia. Tell us a bit about that and, and, yeah, and, and come back to some of the yeah, practical well, the, applications. The book is is primarily a, a manual uh, written in some ways as uh, identifying the patterns within uh, the built field, how you, we retrofit buildings to make them more energy efficient and uh, more self-sufficient with water and all of those things that people associate with retrofitting. But we're also applying that then to the biological field of, okay, the garden's this sort of garden, it's got these sort of trees in it, how can we maximise food production in that context or retrofit it radically, even taking down trees or changing it to make it an abundant food producing and outdoor living in space and and one that's engaging for children and those living a home-based lifestyle. And then thirdly, how we can apply that same retrofitting paradigm to the behavioural field, everything from how we share house to uh, raising self-reliant and resilient children through to the tough issues of ageing, disability and death, financial security, all of the the big uh, tricky issues are addressed there in in sort of broad overview. So the story is different for everyone according to their different situation. And we provide tools in the book for how to identify the different strategic directions that people can take. And of course, young person with no debt wanting to build skills is in a completely different situation to someone who is older, uh, has property, has a long connection in a local community. So that whole balance between migrate somewhere else and explore new possibilities versus consolidate in situ and how much we are going to, in that consolidation, we are going to adapt to what already exists and flexibly change ourselves which is really something ironically for old people because that's what's coming to us as we age anyway, or how much we are going to develop and control our environment and transform it and make it fit for purpose. So creating those, seeing four different solution spaces that emerge out of that and recognising that different people in different situations need to audit their situation and say, okay, well, where do we need to move or what do we need to change? And for a lot of young people who don't own property, it seems like this huge impediment to them being able to do anything. But there's several case studies in the in the book and more on the website and we hope more coming that are actually rental places and recognising that it's not 100% necessary to own something and that my advice given the property bubble is not for people to go into debt buying property uh, if possible, especially young people, and that actually there's some benefits in staying flexible uh, and loose. So we cover a huge spectrum in that and just recognising that different people will need to chart different directions mm, in that's, that. That's great. Yes, yeah. 
no blanket recommendations. You yeah, know, supporting people to yeah, holistically yeah. consider their whole situation, where they're at in their life, what their options are, and and, mm. and then then start to provide some directions, possible mm. directions from there. And it's interesting that like the move that we made in the eighties to Hepburn Springs and starting Meliodora in a small country town was informed partly by with teenage children we didn't want to get into the chauffeuring business of being out on a remote rural property but we we saw the advantages in a small country town and that had actually some of the templates effectively of suburbia and that's one of the solution sort of strategies in the retro suburbia is the move to a country town often getting out of debt by downsizing out of expensive real estate to less so and, you know, something that makes sense for young people, younger people making a, a new move somewhere. Whereas for other people, it may be, wow, we're going to reconsolidate with the ageing parents at the family home where we know what the territory is. We know all of that territory. We're going to move back there and, and really get it cranking. And do it now before yeah, any do it crises now. where you've got a bit of luxury and you can you can take off for the weekend if you need a bit of space from each other yeah. <laughs> while you're working it out. Exactly. Because, I mean, that's a really interesting aspect of all this is that we've become, with the abundance of cheap fossil fuels, we've been able to support living separately from each other. And yeah. and we can our friends are expendable because if we stop liking each other, well, there's plenty more friends. And we often what friendship might mean is, is, is periodically getting together to 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 consume something that was produced elsewhere. But as we move back to interdependent production and we start mm. to literally rely on each other, we have to f- we have to learn how to get on with each other through challenging times and comp- managing complex tasks together, which is part of retrospurby, the behavioural side of things. And you, yeah. s- you share some tools in there about that side of it. Because, of course, if, if, you, if humans can't get on, then that, nothing else is going to work. Yeah. The garden's going to fail. And- yeah, and that's interesting when you look at different countries around the world through my future scenarios lens. You can end up with a f- pretty dark picture when I was in Mexico and in Japan and you look at the realities of, okay, 135 million people on these islands, you know, how much food can be produced. All of that looks really harsh. You look at Australia and say, whole continent, 20 million people, you know, yes, it's a tough continent, but boy, we've got it easy. But then you look at the brittleness of Australian social relationships and that experience of having been autonomous, apparently autonomous individuals in our bubble, that uh, there's a brittleness in those social and community relations that means we have a lot of work to do even if on the basic resources, we're incredibly well off here. So, yeah, there's there's strengths and weaknesses and different challenges no matter where you are and whatever your situation. And I, I think that's always true in permaculture design. As you know, you know, you look at a site and the people doing things, there's pros and cons, there's strengths and, and weaknesses, and we often sort of have a disposition to focus on some things and and not on others it's interesting having been over in new zealand and people saying to me when are you moving off that burning desiccating continent (laughs) and saying oh well at least the the ground doesn't open up under your feet (laughs) at unpredictable times even if we uh have to deal with uh, bushfires so there's also that element of you know humans are amazingly adaptable and how much 
things can become a new normal uh, quite quickly. And even more so, of course, for the next generation. Mm-hmm. As my partner Sue says, uh, with children, you only need two or three other households to create a new normal. Children just completely adapt to whatever is happening that flexibility and yeah we need a lot of that flexibility into the future mm-hmm. brilliant i thought maybe in in closing um what would come to mind in terms of uh we don't, so no blanket recommendations the right thing for the right people but in terms of general advice for people interested in permaculture you know perhaps concerned about navigating mm-hmm. the coming decades are there any kind of your fail safe kind of general recommendations you'd share to, to close Well, I think connecting to the the people that you are close to in some way, finding the people you can talk about really serious notions of the future and really serious notions of self-empowerment and doing what we want to do rather than what we feel forced uh, to do. So having others that you can talk to in that, uh, way. Uh, for those who don't find that in their social circle, exploring that through uh, groups like permaculture groups, transition towns, uh, local community gardens and other places where people are coming together and doing things in uh, loose ways that all contribute to greater self-reliance and uh, lessening our dependence on consumerism and and our impact on the planet to find like-minded people and find more examples and that's also a matter of doing the sort of the audit of not just the social circle but the audit of the your landscape environment community to sort of stand back from it and look at what its um, possibilities are of course there's books courses uh, so many ways to sort of like speed up that that process and for different uh, learners at different stages you know different of those pathways will be important for young people I think the whole thing of volunteering and uh, going off uh, through uh, networks like woofing willing workers on organic farms and other ways to just get in and try things and through a, a learning process, of course, uh, uh, permablitz that you helped start in Melbourne is uh, is one of those frameworks that has an, enabled people to connect to getting your hands dirty and 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 doing things in the in people's backyards and rebuilding the uh, the gift and exchange economy through that those processes. David Hombren, thanks so much for your time and thanks for listening out there. Great to talk, Dan. Thanks, David and Dan, for this amazing chat and exploration. Be sure to get your hands on a copy of David's latest book, Retro Suburbia, and also our agriculture issue of Dumbo Feather. Thanks to Lizzie Martin for producing this episode of the podcast, and Dennis Liu, as always, for the music you hear. We'll be back with you in a month. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already, and give us a rating. We'd love to know what you think about our work. For more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to our magazine at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide.
When you travel with G-Adventures, you do more than just see the world. You experience it. Sure, their small group tours take you places, but they also help you see them in a different way. That's because G-Adventures believe travel should challenge you to understand that our world is bigger than you could have ever imagined. All you have to do is arrive with an open mind. Our world deserves more you. Visit gadventures.com.au for more.